Good morning, Marcel. How are you today? I'm doing well, and welcome everyone here to episode 18, Geezers of Gear. So did you uh, you see that article that uh, with the city of Detroit, right? And, you know, obviously they're having a huge streetlight issue with their this massive amount of LED streetlights that they purchased, and obviously yeah. these things. Really, uh, really a terrible story. I mean, the, that's like sort of the underbelly of buying your stuff from foreign companies that don't have real strong U.S. representation, I guess. Or, um, you know, it's been a really scary thing about the LED business since the beginning of the LED business. And obviously through my other company, I'm in that business. But, you know, the scary part really is that these guys are offering 10-year warranties. And the bottom line is, you know, are they really going to be around for 10 years? And what is a 10-year warranty? And I think not only the city of Detroit, but I think I read that uh, Los Angeles as well was having trouble. Um, it's it's terrible. It's just kind of interesting. And, you know, uh, you know, obviously, you know, city bids are put out for the low cost, right? I mean, you know, low cost wins. And, you know, we, we both know that there's a lot of cost cutting uh, that goes on in the LED world. And it doesn't make a difference whether it's street lights or it's, you know, automated lights that you can, you know, buy from direct from China, you know, that brag all of these outrageous outputs and things like that. You know, there's got to be sort of a, a quality standard that's there. And, you know, how do you really gauge that? It's a tough thing, right? Cause well, yeah. Price, right? And you say low cost, but the, the problem is the lowest price isn't necessarily the lowest cost. And, and Detroit and L.A. And, and whoever else bought from this particular factory, uh, I believe, are learning that now. So they're suing the company. But the problem is, you know, these Chinese companies fold up and, and move on. And next week they're making girls dolls or, uh, you know, whatever it is. They're making something other than LEDs or they continue making LEDs and they just somehow escape that. But I don't know. I mean, hopefully they will have to uh, come clean on this because you can't provide a 10-year warranty. And then what was it, like two or three years or something they're already failing? Yeah, I mean, so dimming and then, you know, flat out failing. So I saw, yeah. I thought, I saw the labor cost just to replace the streetlights alone was... Uh, 50 million, I think. 12, I think, right? 12 oh, million? 12 million in product, 50 million in labor costs. Oh, my God. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's a big, big deal. But the other thing that I found pretty cool or interesting about that article was that the the known entities that they bought from the the American brands or bigger brands, Cree and Cooper, had not failed. They were performing as expected. They were performing up to their specification, and um, generally were not a problem. So that's uh, that says a lot about you know buying from somebody that you. You know the brand, you trust the brand, etc. As opposed to, you know, I keep saying Ching Chow Lighting Company, but unknown. Yeah. Insert, you know, thousands. Like, I know people. I have friends who have gone on uh, Alibaba and said, "Hey, you know, they'll come to me and they'll say, you know, how much is it to light my ten warehouses, for example?" 
and let's say we quote them a fixture that's $400 each, they'll come back to me and say, I can buy this online for a hundred bucks or 150 bucks. And it's hard to argue because they can buy it online for 150 bucks, but it's not the same product. Sometimes they even look the same. You know, sometimes they're using the same uh, tooling or, you know, the same shape or whatever it is. But really, when it comes down to it, it's the components that are inside. It's the power supplies, the drivers for the LEDs and the, the actual sinks, workmanship, yeah. the actual workmanship, you know, bad soldering, you know, just so I've seen it all for sure in this LED space that we're in. And um, I think it's exactly the same in the pro gear market, too, by the way, where you know, you can buy the JBL product or you can buy the, the fake JBL product. And there's a very good chance that the real one's going to do you much more justice. Yeah, especially absolutely. on a long term. So, yeah, it's a great article. Very sad story. I'm telling you for sure. You know, so talking about another sad story here, I see that, um, you know, Woodstock 50, the 50th uh, anniversary of, of Woodstock is coming up. And that they're struggling now to uh, one of their investors pulled out. So it'd be kind of interesting. I've been kind of loosely following, um, you know, this event that they've been trying to put back together. They're trying to put it back together. Obviously, Who was the investor? Was it a, a guy or a company or? I believe it was. Let's see here. Um, it was a company called or Den Densu Aegis Network. So um, I wonder what that is. And I wonder why so, they pulled out. Yeah, not really sure. I mean, you know, a lot of people come up with a lot of great ideas to um, to have events. Actually, I spoke to a, a customer yesterday, interestingly enough, that wants to put together a an entertainment venue just out in the middle of nowhere in uh, Northern California-ish. And, you know, they, they struggle with the same thing of raising money and pitching investors and things like that. But, you know, maybe it's a little bit too much of a wild idea, you know, so... Yeah, a lot of sizzle and no steak, right? So, you know, we've seen a number of festivals. Obviously, you know, that that fire festival that happened over in the Bahamas, and there were some issues even with, um, what was the big uh, EDM event that just happened in Miami? Uh, oh, Ultra, yeah. yeah Ultra, well, you know. Putting it on an island just, with one bridge in and out was kind of yeah. crazy. You know, that's just kind of stupid. And then just on, you know, I guess on new products, so couple of new things that, that, that I saw that were of relative interest is American DJ brought out a dry ice machine that has variable output. And I read the article um, this morning on that where instead of taking a block of dry ice that traditionally hangs in a basket and then it's remotely dropped in to get your dry ice effect, what American DJ do, is doing is that they are pumping the hot water out of the reservoir over the block and then blowing it out. So what you're able to get with that is you're able to vary the output of that. So anything from, you know, light theater to heavy rock and roll concert touring. And it's kind of, it's kind of ridiculous when you think about this for as long as dry ice machines have been around, you know, the giant 50 gallon drums and you, you know, you dump the ice in and, you know, there you go. But I, I thought it was, um, you know, kind of well thought out in the fact that, you know, again, you don't get this, you're able to control that effect that was previously relatively uncontrollable, right? Without a yeah. lot of expense. So well, I thought that was, that I, was I hate cool. to say this, but my, my very first, um, professional gigging band, I was about probably 12 or 13 years old and I was the front guy, the singer. 
And um, we played at high school dances and at uh, like community center parties and things like that, but usually for pretty large audiences. And, and, uh, but our dry ice quote machine was a couple of um, like baking pans with pieces of dry ice in them and somebody standing there dumping water on them and then a fan. And I mean, that was our dry ice system. It was pretty hilarious. And, uh, I don't even, I don't remember where we were getting the dry ice from, but it was pretty archaic and it worked, but not really well, I must say. So we would have loved one of these, uh, one of these American DJ machines back then. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And then, uh, you know, lastly on the, I guess the accessory side of things, uh, Garrett's, uh, brought out a, a product called a pipe cat. And what this is, is a new hanging system for when you have pipe and drape that you're able to quickly hang drape. And it's kind of interesting. I was looking at this product. So it's a traditional, you know, it's kind of like a quick snap clamp that goes around a two inch pipe. But then the thing that actually grabs the drape looks almost like um, tent or tarpaulin uh, camping hardware where you just kind of ratchet down the clamp on the top of it. It looks like it sets up really, really quickly. It's definitely a lot faster than tying tie line onto this and tying it over the pipe. So it's kind of um, an inexpensive thing. You know, it's just thinking outside the box. I'm sure it's a, you know, a $2 per uh, clamp slash clip product. But I thought it was pretty cool in the fact that you just kind of ratchet it down and you go on, right? Well, if it's if it's made specifically for this industry, I would say that it's probably more than $2. It's probably $22, yeah. you know, like yeah. it sounds like a cool product, though. It is. It's just. It's interesting to see that people are still thinking on how to reduce labor costs, right? More than anything, I, yeah. There is an associated cost to this versus tie line, obviously. Right. right. But I mean, you know, you make that you make that up far more in in labor savings. So just yeah. kind of interesting. So the the last thing I wanted to mention is is just on the sponsorship side, we actually have been very blessed in um, pretty much filling our nest with sponsors. We're looking for one final one. Uh, and we're in talks on that final spot. So um, thank you, thank you to the industry for supporting this medium and supporting our doing this. Um, you know, we had no idea, honestly, how popular it was going to get, how quickly. So we're very grateful, and it's nice to be able to, uh, you know, push off some of those costs to some of these uh, sponsors who have helped us bring this show to you. So thank you very much, and um Going forward, of course, every episode will be sponsored by someone. We're going to do our best to bring those sponsors on the show whenever we can, if they're interesting, because there really is a guideline to get on this show where you have to be interesting. And speaking of which, the guest that we have coming up this morning is not only a friend of both of ours and a guy that we've done business with a long time, but just a really great guy, a lot of fun, uh, very interesting guy. And I think many people who are listening to the podcast know Chaz really well, uh, you know, belly up to a bar at a trade show somewhere, having a, having a pint with him and, uh, great stories, which is sharp business guy, right? Another prerequisite for our show is great stories. And yes, you know, I, I think, uh, Chaz tends to be a, a little bit like sort of David Milley in that they really are sharp business guys uh, to begin with. And it's something I want to talk to Chaz about today. So um, because, you know, coming from from his background and being a lighting designer, that transition into business just doesn't seem like a natural one. So 
Um, I want to talk to him a bit about how he did that. So let's go ahead and uh, wake him up and get Chaz on the show. Good morning, Chaz. Good morning, Marcel. Good morning, Henry. Good morning, Chaz. Hope you're doing well. I, I am, yeah, very well, thanks. And you? Very well. You're one Beautiful of those day guys, outside today. You're one of those guys I only see at trade shows anymore. That's no good. I don't like it. <clears throat> Probably the fact that uh, my entire company is is virtually officed now uh you know we're i probably haven't even talked about this much but gear source has gone full remote and so we have about 20 staff around the world um but we're fully remote so we still have a building here in wellington florida but most of the week the bill the building is empty and it's funny because people call me for a meeting like one of the lighting manufacturers called me for a meeting and uh, said, we'll come by your office. And I said, we don't have to. I mean, I can meet you at the office if you'd like, or, you know, we can meet at a, a restaurant or a bar or a coffee place, whatever you'd, you'd like. So um, it's a very different way of doing business, this, uh, this remote thing, but it's yeah. really working well. And it, I'll tell you one thing it does do. I think we both or we all know uh, what a challenge it is to get and keep good people. And it mm-hmm. opens up the hiring pool because people don't have to be located in in sleepy Wellington, Florida anymore. They can be located really anywhere they are. So it works out right. really well. Just the savings in you know in fuel and tolls alone. Yeah, you know, Central Florida. Oh my God. Does, does right? that mean Does that mean that you close the offices at some point in the future? Or I don't know. Like that's a thought that I'm obviously having because I feel stupid. I've got a really nice building down the road that sits empty most of the time, and it's. You know, on the on the other note, it's begging me to fill it with, you know, race cars or something. And I really don't want to go down that right. road. So um, so I don't know. Like, I, I I'm a little leery still. You know, I, I guess I'm a bit old fashioned when it comes to this entire topic. Um, I would tend to think that we'll always keep a building because we always need to store products somewhere at some point. Uh, we need a meeting place. Right. We need a conference room. We need, um, you know, just sort of a gathering point. So I'm, I'm pretty confident yeah. we'll always keep an office space and a building. But it's just, it's a very different way of doing business that's kind of trendy right now. Like uh, for a while, the trend was like Google and Facebook, where you have um, incredible chefs coming in and cooking food, and you have ping pong tables and foosball and all that stuff. And the trend is going away from that. To, I can really focus a lot better if you let me work from my home office. And so, yeah. you know, it's just something that with me, like our staff started moving away from Wellington and would come to me and go, you know, I really don't want to leave the company. I love it here, but I have to move to Las Vegas because my husband's business is is moving there. And we go, well, yeah, you're a great employee. You know, why shouldn't we keep you? And, um, it just started getting to where we went from, you know, 15 or 16 people here locally to five or six, and then just kind of went, you know what, why are we making five people come into the office when you could be just as, if not more productive from home? So it's working out really well. The video conferencing definitely has helped that a lot, you know, so up until probably what, 18 months ago, the video conferencing, getting 10 people on a call was tough it was really yeah. was tough and now, now it's, it's really yeah. smoothed out you know? yeah and you yeah. know like we use google uh meet hangouts meet and it works pretty well but i'll tell you there's a product out there that 
you know, so we use Google because it's free. It's included in the, in the platform that we pay for from Google, uh, whose name I refuse to say because I'm in a bit of an argument, <laughs> argument with them over it, over whose it is. Right. But, um, right. but you know, so we use that because it's included in the cost, but there's a really good platform out there called zoom where a lot of the meetings that I'm having lately with a lot of our web development and marketing team are based on zoom now. And it's incredible how high quality the video is on zoom. Have you ever tried it? Chaz? I, I haven't, but, but I've, I've heard a lot about it. Yeah. yeah. Do you use video conferencing at all for like meetings? Uh, or? We do. And I, and I, for the life of me, I don't remember what we use, but yeah, um, yeah we do. Well, yeah. that's, that's because you're a geezer. It's harder to remember when you're a geezer. <laughs> It is absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So uh, reading over these show notes, you know, I've known you for a long time. I think Henry's known you a long time as well. And, and, and certainly we've known a lot about you for a long time. But I'll tell you, when I was reading over these notes and, and the sort of pre-discussions we've had, um, the fact that you started in audio shocked me. I didn't know that. I, I didn't I, know that either. Yeah. I never would have guessed it. A lot of people don't know that, and um, it, it was strange. You know, I I, I started out um, very young. I think I was about eighteen when I I started at my first studio, which was uh, a, a voiceover studio in the West End of London in Soho, uh, called Studio G. And I, I got that job because my neighbour. Um, I, I had some neighbours. The, the father was. Um, I'm not sure. I think he was either a sound recordist for the BBC or he was a director for the BBC. And he had two sons, um, Paul and Mark. And, and I believe Paul was already working at Abbey Road at that point. And, and Mark um, was just leaving Studio G to go to another sound studio, uh, music studio, actually. And, and he said, look, you know, there's going to be a position available um, you may want to apply and, and see if you got the get the job. So I, I did, and and I got the job. Um, basically, you know, just just really doing editing and duplicating. And and I was being trained by another ex BBC engineer, um, <clears throat> Dave Miller. And Dave taught me very well. He taught me editing extremely well. Um, so they they hired you at first yeah. though with no experience at all in in. Uh, absolutely, absolutely none. Wow, that's absolutely pretty cool. None. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, but remember, this was, you know, like I said, seventy-four, and I, I was maybe earning twenty pounds a week. Yeah. You know, what? What is that? That's just yeah. terrible. So, 30, did, you, did, you have an, did you have an interest in the business, or you just needed a job? Um, I, you know, I knew I knew what I didn't want to do. And I had friends who were all sort of doing like office jobs and stuff like that. And I, and I said, you know, there's no way in hell I'm going to do that. So um, it, it appealed to me. I mean, I, I kind of had a um, thought, you know, at 18, what the hell do you know? You know, but, yeah. but I, I, I thought, well, maybe I want to get into architecture or maybe I want to get into movies or, you know, something like that. So it, it sort of had a, had that appeal to it. it. It was different. It was interesting. It was something that, that you know hadn't had an attraction about it. Right. Yeah. Well, I can certainly see that. So at that point, you're yeah. recording or editing what quarter inch, half inch tape, right? On 
completely analog <clears throat> well, mixing was, concept, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we were, the, I, think, I think when I first started, it was all two and four track, um, and we would just be editing two track. Uh, and it was really old equipment. I mean, really cool stuff, actually. It was all um, EMI um, tape recorders, so EMI BTR2s and BTR4s, which were old Valvamp um, decks, you know, exactly the same as they would have used at Abbey Road. Um, and, and physical splicing. I mean, this is actually physically, you know, cutting tape. So, you know, we we'd have to take out breaths out of commercials and stuff like that. Um, so it was, it was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. Well, and I mean, what a, what, what a chance opportunity when you think of it, because you know, that moment when you were 18 and somebody got you a gig at a, at a place recording voiceovers, really, I mean, when we get further into the story, I think you're going to, you're going to find that, you know, your career came from kind of that moment, right? Um, yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's, you know, when I look back, um, it's very surreal. I mean, I I think I've been an extremely fortunate person in, in, you know, how my career developed and and what I was able to do. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was, it, it probably was the formative moment, I suppose. Yeah. So what happened? You're you're sitting there recording voiceovers, and then what? Um, well, I mean, you know, I was I was in the editing bay and the, and the duplicating bay for quite a while. And I'll tell you a funny story about that. There, there was the the head guy. I mean, he was maybe a couple of years older than me in that in that duplicating bay, Ivor. And um, he used to have a pot of tea that he would keep warm on top of the amplifier inside the BCR2 tape deck. In, in the studio, so he'd actually have this part of tea on the end, keeping keep warm all day. Anyway, yeah, but but yeah, I, I was there for a couple of years. I mean, it took me a while to to progress, and I I, I became a junior engineer, or you know, tape op assistant engineer, and and eventually an engineer, and and uh, you know, had some interesting commercials that we recorded. Like uh, I remember a series of. Uh, Sony Trinitron TV commercials with John Cleese from um, Wow, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> of course, from from, from the Monty Python stuff, and and um, I, I I just remember you know having seen him on TV and then seeing him in the flesh. What what a um, unbelievably tall kind of gangly guy he was, and, and uh, yeah, very very strange. So what were yeah. you doing with him? Uh, we, we were recording some Sony Trinitron TVs back in those commercials oh. for Sony Trinitron, Trinitron TVs. And he was the spokesperson or whatever. Yeah, he was a voiceover. Wow, yeah. cool. So no formal education in that, that end of recording, right, Chaz? It's just basically all experiential learning. Not, right? not, none whatsoever. I mean, I, again, you know, I'll, I'll go back to, to Dave Miller. Dave, Dave really pretty much taught me... Um, all the basics and, and, uh, uh, he was a very good teacher. You know, he, he'd had the BBC training, so he, he knew what he was talking about and, um, imparted what he could to me. I was never a good, great student, but, yeah. <laughs> but um, um, it, it sort of, you know, got me on my way. Yeah. Well, and then, and then at some point you kind of evolved past the voiceovers, right? I, I did. I, you know, um, it, it's strange because the same 
um, you know, probably two years later. I, I want to say it was about 76. Um, I, I used to see, I lived in the same town as Mark um, Vigars, who had gotten me that original job. And Mark, um, you know, I, I don't remember if we, if we met down the pub or, or if he called me, but um, he told me that he was leaving the job that, that um, he was doing as, a, as an engineer at, at this little music studio in, in North London called um, Pathway Studio. And he he uh, got a job with his brother um, at Abbey Road. And in fact, uh, Mark went on to do a lot of stuff with McCartney and Wings, and um, you know was probably the biggest act that he he worked with at, at Abbey Road. But Mark uh, was instrumental in, in getting me my second job at, at Pathway, um, which was you know this was sort of the peak of punk in London, 70, 76. Mm. And um, there was a, uh, an indie label called Stiff Records and, and Stiff had really made uh, Pathway their home to record all of their acts. So there'll be, you know, this, this whole slew of uh, bands coming through, a lot of punk, punk bands, The Damned and uh, Reckless Eric was another one. Um, uh, but you know some 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 other stuff, and and I remember Nick Lowe. Uh, you know, Nick came and did a few things on his own and with Dave Edmonds. But Nick came in as the producer with this new artist for Stiff um, by the name of Declan McManus, and um, uh, who became better known as Elvis Costello. Um, fairly soon wow. after that, but they had the they had the backing band of Huey Lewis's um, called Clover, and came in and and I think um, Elvis basically took time off work to come in and cut that album. My my aim is true, and uh, all the backing tracks, everything was done, uh, mixed, um, and and done in about ten days at that studio. So that whole album was done there, and you must have so you must have had stars in your eyes at this point, right? Or or was he he wasn't famous yet? Or well, I, I mean, he, he was unknown. I mean, no, oh. you know, I'd never heard of him. I oh, mean, I see. He, he had done stuff before, but uh, I mean, he was Declan McManus to me, and, and right. I mean, I knew it was great. You, you could hear these songs. You could you could hear you know, um, watching the detectives or or um, My Aim Is True or or you know. And any of those songs, and you went, "Wow, this is this is like powerful stuff." I mean, I but he wasn't yet called. Great, great. He wasn't yet called Elvis Costello. No, I think they were just, you know, I think uh, Jake Riviera at, at Stiff was basically formulating that name at that at that point. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it was it was very it was crazy. It was surreal. And right. in, in fact, I, I, I saw Nick. Um, I saw Nick Lowe. Last year, I went to a gig that he did, and and uh, we got we got talking. and And if you listen, it, it was strange because we we never really had very much equipment in that studio, especially outboard stuff. And uh, we had to hire this piece of gear from uh, Britannia Road, from Pink Floyd's studio, um, that he wanted to use in in the mix. and And I could not get this thing to do what he wanted it to do. 
So if you listen to watching the detectives, you'll you'll hear the backing vocals, um, which is this really weird kind of ooh, and, and it's just because all I could do was to put the backing vocals through a square wave generator, basically. Really? <laughs> That's how we get wow. it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. so you were so actually you were actually yeah. like involved in in. Absolutely. Recording Absolutely. that album? Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. I'm going to go out and buy the album now just to see Chaz's name on the credits. <laughs> well, it's not on there. I don't, I don't get a credit, actually. It's really weird. And, and it was strange because I, I did talk to, to Nick about that. I mean, it, it was pretty common. There, there, there was, a, you know, there's lots of stuff uh, on Stiff where my, I, I'm credited as Chazza, C-H-A-Z-Z-A, and... Um, uh, Charles and, and all sorts of stuff. And, and I think on um, Reckless Eric, I can't, I can't remember. They, they put it down as Bar Snack Studios, I think. Was <laughs> the, the name that he gave it. Oh, that's um, good. But yeah, we, we did, I did Whole Wide World and, and stuff like that with, with Reckless Eric, um, which was a somewhat of a hit in, in the UK. I don't know if it was. But it was fun times. I mean, it was, it was crazy. It was a... It was a really tiny little studio that that um, smelled terrible. It had like damp problems and um, was very funky. And and probably the the main space was, you know, it was only one studio, but the 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 room was, um, you know, smaller than most living rooms. Yeah, um, yeah, it was funny. Huh. So somehow, I, so somehow, I imagine you having a green mohawk at this point, also, right? I, I didn't have a green mohawk, actually. No, I, I was I was um, long haired. I was very proud of my long hair. <laughs> yeah, well, especially my long, now. My long, yeah, <laughs> my long blonde flowing locks. I suppose, I suppose this was the the pivotal um, moment. Uh, uh, you know, I used to get because I was a junior guy. I I would get. Um, stuck on most of the night sessions which was the the cheap rate stuff so it would either be overnight and generally speaking they were like um you know dalston reggae bands or, or brixton reggae bands that would come in overnight because it was so cheap and they were horrible sessions they were just so difficult um uh, and it's miserable at three o'clock in the morning you know um working on that kind of stuff but um a, a band had booked in, I think, for an evening session, uh, again, under, under a name that, you know, I'd never heard of, and I, I don't think anybody else really had at that point, um, under the Cafe Races. And so these guys came in, four-piece, four um, you know, very uh, pleasant, just set up really quickly, like you could tell they'd been uh, very used to gigging because they'd basically set their gear up like they were just going to do a gig and um we cut five tracks and um you know this is probably an eight hour session so we would have recorded um mixed uh done any overdubs and, and mixed down the stereo within within those those eight hours Jeez. and, and by, by yeah it was five tracks um uh, anyway uh you know 
the, these demos, they were demos and they got played on uh, a radio, a very popular radio show by uh, DJ Charlie Gillett, BBC uh, DJ. And um, this would have been about July, I think, of 77. Um, and, you know, uh, apparently um, every A&R guy in London was listening and um, this band got signed immediately to, uh, I want to say, the phonogram. And uh, they became known as Dire Straits pretty much wow. immediately. Damn. So we we cut we cut we cut Sultans of Swing and uh, four other songs down to the waterline, um, Water of Love, Southbound again, and some other song I don't remember. So the first time you heard that jazz, like Sultans of Swing, is one of my favorite songs, right? I mean, did it absolutely blow you away when you just watch it play? Jaw jaw dropping. I mean, you know, you you know you know you're in the presence of something very special and your interaction you know, because i mean the the, the so the solo on that demo in fact that demo got released um mark put it out um as an ep um i want to say three three years ago on you know on vinyl for for record day and in england they have a they have a thing called record day or you know vinyl day which is i don't, I don't know what it is um april or something every year and um, he released it, had it you know, re- remastered and, and put out. Um, and I was actually really pleasantly surprised at how good it was. <laughs> was it, was it uh, re-released it, as Cafe Racers or, or uh, Dire Straits? No, 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 no. It was Dire Straits. And I can't remember what they, what they called it, whether they, they called it the, the demos or... or um, yeah, I, I don't remember. I'm going to have to go look for it. I want to hear it. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 fun. I mean, obviously, you know, comparatively to to nowadays, um, it, it doesn't stand up. But but um, yeah, yeah, it's okay. You know. Yeah, oh, that's cool. So, so your interaction with them, obviously, you know, you're spending a lot of time. Uh, you spend an eight hour session with them. You know, and you, you know, we'll get into this in a little bit. You obviously went on to do their lighting, but. Talk a little bit about the dynamic between you and Mark and the band and how it got to that point. <clears throat> well, I, I think, um, I, I think they were really pleased. I mean, they, they, you know, the, the reason they became dire straits was because they were basically completely broke and, and they had, you know, um, gathered their last few pounds to pay for this, this recording session um and i think really with this sort of the the result of the demos and um you know where it took them pretty much immediately um you know he was sort of grateful for my contribution i suppose i i I don't you know we did get along well i mean it was it was a good dynamic and and um uh, I think he was he was happy with with uh, the recording. So, yeah, yeah. But how did that? So that that obviously continued into some sort of a relationship when, you know, he eventually came back to you and said, you know, we can't take you out as as an audio engineer because uh, we already have one. But 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit it's a little bit hazy in in the timing of that, but I, I um, because I remember I, I want to say right around the same time I actually went out and I did a um, uh, as a front of house engineer I did a stiff live stiff. Uh, tour, which was, you know, a lot of artists from Stiff, including uh, Reckless Eric and, and Elvis Costello, um, around the UK, um, which was a terrible experience for me, um, you know, because then we were trying to mix stage monitors from the front of house and, <laughs> oh boy, you know, as well as mix as as well as mix front of house sound. So it was it was a very very alien. Um, thing to me and 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 i i really did not enjoy that um too much but um i want to say that that tour happened and then i believe um um they mark you know dire straits came back in to uh cut some more demos and i'm not sure you know again this is a little bit hazy but i'm not sure if those were prior to them cutting the album with um muffle and wood uh, or whether it was for, for other songs, he just wanted to to, to lay down. But um, you know, uh, I, I think '78 um, was basically when he when he said, um, you know, uh, we we got a sound guy. Do you want to you want to give it a whirl at, at, at lighting? And I I said yeah. Looking back at that, though, it's kind of funny how how much of a backseat that lighting took to where they were going to take a completely inexperienced guy who'd never run lights before out as their you know lighting director. Totally, designer. I mean, it, yeah, yeah, and you're, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it it really was um, a fairly secondary uh, you know art form, I suppose, in 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 those days, people really didn't appreciate it that much. Yeah. Um, well, so it was really I, just you know, down I, I to turning was, on and off park hands, right? It, there wasn't a lot of attention put to lighting design or anything, uh, you know, in the early days, I guess. I was going to ask what the first rig was. Oh God, I, I had no clue. I mean, I, I would have, you know, I, I, I remember doing stuff where we had, um, uh, it probably would have been uh, the the um, pneumatic genie towers that were basically in a box, and you would get a um, uh, you know compressed air cylinder or, or whatever, and you'd pump these towers up, and you would have twelve parkans on a tree, and mm-hmm. generally speaking, we would kind of put them. Um, so they would be, you know, downstage, kind of downstage, but mid-stage. So you didn't really have any have any upstage. I think I think we probably progressed from those two um, pneumatic trees to adding either one or two more in in back. Probably one behind the drummer. I think at that point. Um, so you know, twelve, twenty-four, th- thirty-six pars, hmm. something like that. Very different. And a bunch of I, I used to use I used to use a lot of floor specials back then. Um, yeah, yeah. But I mean, but basically that was it. That was sort of that was fairly high tech back in those days. 
So mixing on basically a two-scene theatrical lighting console. Was that about it at the day, or were you storing twos um, at that point? I, I, I remember we had, I, you know, I don't know if you guys recall, you remember all the hands? You remember all the hand dimmers and, and consoles? No. Did you ever see those? I didn't. All the hands, you know, English, um, and I don't know who, who, who actually built, I guess the company was all the hand, but um, they were one of the first, and this might have been later, um, later on, uh, but I remember they were one of the first consoles that I ever used that that had a pin a pin matrix, so yeah. you could actually re- record scenes. Um, but I, again, I could be getting my timing wrong as to to when when those came in. It might have been something far simpler, you know, on those first runs. So how like how was that for you? You know, opening night. I I guess they weren't that big yet. So what size venues? Like, were you in a panic? Did you freak out? Because you know you'd never run lights before. I guess right. No, no, no I don't even think. I, I think the the first stuff that I did with them um, was all clubs, and okay. and we would not have we would not have carried uh, any lighting. I don't think. I mean, may, maybe I, you know maybe something very very minimal. But um, you would use whatever was in the club, and, and honestly, that that's really where I I learned my craft. I, I think that um, probably more on the first U.S. tour, which would have been you know either late, I, I, it's either late '78 or early '79, and and uh, you know we were doing um, two shows a night, six nights a week. Jesus. Uh, three three road guys driving the rider truck between gigs so you you do the shows you 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 know um get out of there and drive to the next gig and and do what you did with the house rigs the the next day and and that was that's how it was so so basically i was using a different system every day trying to create some kind of semblance of uh you know, similarity between each show um, with different equipment. Yeah. Wow. Certainly you knew the music yeah. well enough, right? Having sat through the recording session, so that I must did. have helped. You know? I, I did. Yeah, and, and you know, really, I, I, the whole thing with Dire Straits was that um, everything was the, the, in the same place. I mean, the solos were... <laughs> The queuing was really relatively easy because it, it, you know, he didn't go off on tangents, and, and um, so I, I knew I knew the show really well. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it blew up. You know, it really blew up, sort of, uh, really from the get-go. I mean, it was a pretty rapid um, climb. I, I remember at the end of that first U.S. tour, you know, we we started it on the East Coast, and um, uh, by the time we got to the West Coast, uh, I remember driving down Sunset um, past Tower Records. There used to be a big billboard above Tower Records, and uh, I want to say that, that the single had had reached number two. I don't think it ever made number one. Maybe it did. I'm not sure. Um, and and we were 
playing two nights at the Roxy and, um, you know, just seeing that billboard and, and the people that, you know, the, the famous names that came down to see the band at, at the Roxy was astonishing. So you kind of knew at that point that, yeah, something that was happening. this was, yeah. So how far in advance is this of when they recorded Money for Nothing, which absolutely blew up, right? So you're talking, what, about another two or it's three years? It's, it, it's a long time. I mean, you'd have to pull up the date on, on Money for Nothing, Henry. I really, I, yeah, I mean, it's got to be, it's got to be, uh, got to be mid eighties or something, I would think. I, off the top of my head, I don't recall. Right. Yeah. So when was you, when was the first gig? Was it during that tour? Like, did you start in small clubs and end up in a theater or something? No, no, no. I I, I want to say that, that that was the last gig was was the gig at the Roxy. We oh, might have, okay. we might have done some something else. So we went east to west, and then we came back. And I, and really from that point, it kind of um, it it kind of jumped in terms of the size of venues that we were doing. And, um, so, you know, the next time that we went out in the UK, we probably would have been doing, you know, Hammersmith Odeons or, um, Brixton Academies or, or whatever, you know, uh, and by this, theaters, time, but, by, but, by this time you actually have to design a rig, right? I, I did. Yes. Yeah. So, so that was a, a real education and I kind of got that because I, I would, um, hang out down, well, hang out. I, I would go down to Zenith Lighting, who were our suppliers um, later on. I mean, so first off, we had um, Supermic Lighting. Yeah, I remember um, them. And, and then um, Zenith, uh, I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm sorry I'm hazy on this, but the, the date... Um, probably in those sort of early years, 81, 82. Um, and so I would go down to Zenith's warehouse in Chelsea in London and see other guys building rigs and, and what they were taking out and kind of, you know, drew from that and went, okay, this is kind of what I want to do and learned by, by just, emulating some of what they were putting together but right. but not how i look at the show and not how i i use color or, or or anything else so at that point Chaz, you know you're down in the in the zenith um lighting rental warehouse special effects now yeah. in europe are starting to to creep in you know obviously all the disco effects are starting to creep in the very first automated lights started to pop up around 82, 83. Were you into that at that point? Were you primarily using just PAR and Lico rigs? I, I, I knew, not, I knew, honestly, I knew nothing of them. I, I had no clue. I had no clue that, um, uh, you know, I, I think there was a sort of a, um, uh, a real line of, of division uh, between what was accepted in, um, you know, theater and or concert touring um, and what was um, deemed as being sort of uh, beneath that, which was stuff that was in discos and, and that kind of stuff. Right, yeah. So, 
so you know it was it was definitely like a um you wouldn't be seen dead with something out of a disco <laughs> yeah well and especially <laughs> i i mean I, I don't get the feeling that dire straits would be very experimental you know maybe maybe on pink floyd or something you might see something weird coming out of a disco but um you know i i just uh i would think it'd be a little more traditional when you're talking about a design for dire straits yeah, I mean, I, I, the 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 only real effect that we had were, was strobes. I mean, these horrible square—I can't even remember who made them—but square, boxy strobes that never fired when you wanted them to fire, and and fired erratically um, when you didn't want them to fire. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, uh, and aircraft landing lights, and and that was really about the extent of anything. Um, that, you know, was deemed a special effect, I suppose. I, I, I find it so interesting that, you know, you just kind of fell into lighting, obviously. You know, you, you, you're working in a studio doing audio and suddenly you're sort of thrust out there into this lighting thing with a pretty big band and maybe they weren't that big in the very beginning, but they got big very quickly and just the ability to figure it all out and, and, you know, it just had to be a really fun period of time. And, you know, at what point did you start working for other, uh, bands? Like at what point did you work with someone other than Dire Straits as a lighting guy? You know, going back to that, to that, uh, Roxy gig, um, I, I remember, um, we did two nights and, and after the first night we were just, covering up the consoles out front. And um, I remember Mark came out and said, hey, Chaz, you know, come back to the dressing room. There's someone who wants to meet you. And um, so I went back and um, uh, there's Bob Dylan. And wow. He was very, compl- he was, he was very complimentary and, and um, you know, uh, just you know very nice and i I really didn't didn't think too much about that um but um why not (laughs) uh, well i i mean you you have to understand i i was a kid man i mean i was maybe uh you know what was i 20 22 yeah Uh, i mean that's pretty that's pretty young and and um i i don't think that the you know even though my brother you know my older brother had listen to Bob Dylan. I, I, it didn't sort of, I wasn't starstruck by it, but I, I was like, okay, you know, this kind of means something, but, um, anyway, I really didn't think too much about it. And, uh, and, uh, I didn't think that it, it, it kind of would lead anywhere. Um, but I want to say that, that, uh, again, and I'm sorry for my haziness on the timeline, but, um, you know, probably 80, 81, 82, I, I got a phone call from Michael A. Hearn, um, who was, a um, tour manager, production manager. And, and, uh, basically the next thing I knew, I, I was on a plane flying out to, um, to, uh, LA and I was put up at Bob's house. He had a compound and I was put up at Bob's house rehearsing with the band, you know, basically learning, learning the songs with the band, uh, and went on to do a world tour with, with um, Bob Dylan's Santana. Yeah. 
That's cool. So it was it was very strange. I mean, it was strange, and that that's really how you know that that kind of that kind of um, one thing leading to another was you know um, story of my my working life, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, you were obviously doing something right if it was, uh, you know, first of all, if for for Mark Knopfler to offer an audio engineer who's relatively green at being an audio engineer, but to offer you a lighting <laughs> position, uh, you know, when you've never run lights before, says a lot about your, your character or personality or, you know, they had to see something like, hey, this kid's going to go somewhere. And um, that's really, really cool. What a great story. I mean, I didn't know any of this stuff, Chaz. So, you know, you're not the most braggy guy I know. So you're not going to sit down and go, well, let me tell you about my history. Um, but it's so interesting to, to hear that stuff. So how did the Steve Miller thing come about? Probably, you know, similar way he saw you on Bob Dylan and said, Hey, come work for me. Um, no, uh, that, that, that was actually different. Um, I, I had, um, you know, I knew Mark Brickman, uh, Mark and I had met, um, Actually, in New Zealand, he was he was uh, there doing a Joni Mitchell tour, and we met up. I mean, we both knew each other's names, but we'd never actually met, and, and we did meet up in in New Zealand. Uh, you know, nothing nothing really, just like a social thing, and and got to to talk and and stuff. And um, when I when I moved to the states. Um, from the UK, which was 82, um, we started, you know, we stayed in touch and, and um, we did, you know, Mark was really busy. Uh, he had a lot of stuff going on and, and he uh, very, very generously uh, back then said, hey, I've, I've um, got a design for uh, Rick Springfield. Um, you want to take it out? And, um I, I said absolutely. You know, I, I was on downtime, and um, yeah, I did that. I did that tour for, for Mark, um, and you know, we we always had a, a, a very good relationship. And and um, he same thing. I mean, in, in I want to say, uh, gosh, I, I guess about eighty nine. I think it was eighty nine. Same thing. He he said, well. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I've got Steve Miller, um, basically I can't do it. I've, I've got some, so many other commitments. Um, can I put it your way? So, um, I absolutely, um, flew out to meet with Steve, um, at his house and, uh, put a design together. And, you know, we, we clicked, Steve and I clicked, and um, uh, but that was it. You know, basically, I, I was working with Steve pretty much for the next 12 years, I think, something like that. The drama from uh, Steve Miller Band, I, I, remember, I remember getting off a bus at four o'clock in the morning, uh, middle of Nebraska, staying in some crappy uh, Holiday Inn or, or whatever, and we're sitting in the lobby because, you know, they can't get us checked in and yada, yada, yada. And I remember Gordy leaning over to me and, and looking at me and going, what, and quit show business? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> which, 
which pretty much summed it up, you know. Yeah. And and it was great, you know, timing timing wise, it was strange because I, I was really lucky in this. I I all of these tours sort of timed out so that the acts that I, I was working with would, you know, finish up a tour and and uh another artist that, that um you know I'd I'd be involved with would be going out. So I I really didn't have too much downtime. It was That's it was quite really good like cool. That. So at this point, Chaz you know, you're an LD with a quite a bit of notoriety. Had you incorporated Zenith Lighting or a company yet, or is that pre um, uh, pre business formation? Li- little bit later on. I want to again. Um, I'm so bad on dates, but um, I want to say eighty. I could be wrong on this. Um, 80, 80, 86. Uh, no, it can't have been. It must have been. It must have been like ninety six. I think I got incorporated. But I, I, you know, I, very early on, I, I bought my first Avo console, um, and you know, figured out that I could um, kind of double dip by renting my console to Zenith Lighting in the very early days. Um, for the tours that I did, and then have them work it even when I wasn't going out. Oh, I don't perfect. know they paid me everything. Perfect. <laughs> I yeah. don't know they paid me for, for all the times that it went out, but but um, but yeah. That's um, cool. So I I kind of I kind I kind of got a handle on that fairly early on that, that okay I can I can double dip and and uh, make some money on gear as well. Yeah. Well, and then so the next big iteration of that concept was something that we're familiar with and we've spoken about it a couple times i think on this podcast already was um your use of the intellibeam so how did how did that start like how because you know as you said there was always sort of a taboo thing of of disco lights crossing over into the rock and roll business so it was either a rock and roll light from its birth or it was just not accepted and here comes this you know crazy british guy who's bringing these you know, previously pretty much disco lights, um, into the professional world. So what, what got that going? Well, um, I, uh, I had a friend who was, um, he did, you know, pretty big deal, uh, audio installations out of LA. And, um, he said, Hey, I've got this nightclub that I'm doing, uh, Hilton down in Bali in Indonesia um, you want to you know you want to design it you want to design it and, and uh, uh, install it and I I've never done anything like that and I you know it seems I, to be a I pattern yes in your me. career exactly like I think Elon Musk is going to call you up and say Chaz I'm designing a new SUV <laughs> well, I, I, I tell you what that that was a really tough that was a tough gig, man. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about that. But um, going out to, you know, Bali was very third world back then. And, and um, taking a taking trilight aluminum truss down there, trying to find an aluminum welder because all of the architectural plans uh, were about, you know, three or four feet out. <laughs> so 
Oh, nice. Uh, and, and trying to find someone to weld trust in Bali and Indonesia back then was uh, a real trip. Um, any, anyway, but, but, you know, so, so I'd, I'd been, I'd been asked to, to do this and I, I'd said, um, I'd said, yes, so I was committed and, and I was, I was thinking, oh my God, you know, what, what have I got myself into here? Um, you know, really looking around for equipment to, to use on this installation. And I don't know, um, I, I don't know how I came across high end, but I, I, I came across high end and I, I'm not, were they high end then or were they, were they black? Was it black? No, by the time, or? by the time the IntelliBeam had launched, they were, um, they were high end. So Blackstone was, they were, yeah, the Blackstone was the distribution company okay. that did play back in Comar and stuff like that, you know. And uh, right, well, Lightwave, I, I, I think, Lightwave Research fit in there somewhere too. Lightwave Research wasn't that the Color Pro and the uh, the Viper and that, and that stuff. That's right. Yes, yeah. and and that that funny the funny little laser that they had. What yeah, was, laser chorus. Yeah. Laser chorus and Viper. Yeah, laser laser chorus. And I, and I from memory, I think we had laser chorus and some. Uh, the MR16 color pros and um, uh, the uh, I think they had IntelliBeam only IntelliBeam 400s at that point. Um, anyway, you know I wanted to I wanted to use this stuff um, for this club install, um, so I I picked up the phone and I called down to high end. Um, and I, I ended up speaking with Richard Cadena and um, unbeknownst to me, um, Richard Bellevue had basically said um, to all of the sales guys, you know, I'll give you a thousand dollars if you can bring in an LD from a known band that we can, you know, persuade to use our equipment on their tour because he obviously realized that, you know, that's what we need. We need to get this um, exposure in, in the sort of the broader market. And, um, you know, R Richard basically asked me, he said, well, who, who are you? You know, so <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he said, he said, I can't sell to you unless you're a dealer. So the, the next thing, you know, I said, well, you know, I, I I, I designed some some touring stuff, and, and he said, "Oh well, who's that?" And I I told him, you know, next thing you know, I'm I'm on a plane flying down to Austin, and um, I remember they picked me up at the airport uh, in in the big uh, Humvee. Um, the, you remember the big white yeah. Humvee they had, and, yeah. the H1, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I was like, and my head was spinning, man. I was going, "What the hell is this? This is this is crazy." And I was never, I, I'd never really been sort of exposed to that kind of stuff, and it was very strange. Um, and I went to, I went to high end and um, uh, met Rich Bellevue uh, and had really intense meetings with Rich. You know, Rich was really pushing to to. Um, to do this with the, the IntelliBeam 700s, um, which I guess they were just really working on at that point. But, um, 
you know, I, I'd have these day-long meetings with Richard and, and come out with my head hurting. He was he was very intense about everything. And um, um, but anyway, long story short, we 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 ended up deciding to 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 take the fixtures because they you know they they committed i mean high end committed really um strongly to that project so i mean they 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 made that system work and it, and it was it was brutal i mean more brutal on on their guys than on on you know my guys it was really a little still a little bit of a separation there but um you know those, those fixtures were bears, and I, I don't even remember how many spare units we had um, out of seventy-eight or whatever we took out. Uh, um, but it was a ton. I mean, we'll probably double that, double that number out there. So, um, although you're hailed as uh, you're hailed as like the genius that kind of started it all today, but at the time you were probably thinking, "What the hell have I gotten myself into?" Right. Um, you, you know, not so much. It, it, it really, you know, the, 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 there was a, a very interesting thing about um, working with mirror lights that I, I discovered pretty um, early into the whole thing, and maybe maybe even as early as, as doing that nightclub, um, that I could do these really wonderful things that, that you know, because it moved so quickly um, that before you'd really even kind of got a uh, a real visual on it, you know, uh, doing a, a, a very quick fly away and fade out or something, um, you know, it, it was it was like a it, you know it was like ethereal. It, it happened so quickly, uh, but it was enough movement. It was enough suggestion in, in that movement to make you go, "Wow, what what was that?" You yeah. know, there was like this these little these little enhancements uh, visually, you know, the, the Verilites and, and the PARs and everything that I was using in the rest of the rig probably took the, um, you know, the brunt of the statement, if you like, the visual statement. But the, the, uh, the IntelliBeams really offered, um, you know, this, this sort of ethereal quality, this real addition to, to stuff that, that would make you go, wow. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you, you know, it, it, I, I would, I would, uh, poor Tim Grievous, <laughs> you know, we, we, we programmed that, that tour and uh, I don't even remember how many banks of controllers there were. There were probably, you know, 20, uh, 20 controllers on that, Jesus. on that thing. All and, those and, individual like LCD course, controllers, right? Each one did like eight uh, lights or something. Uh, absolutely yeah. and he would have to punch every single i mean you know how it was you'd have to punch every single button yep. to um to call up that light and and honestly to 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 change it from blue to red was was maybe a <laughs> a 15 or a 20 minute Jesus. process but so i would look i would look at a queue and uh and go yeah you know, go no. You know, I, I, that's not working for me. I, I want it red. You know, make them all red, and not really. Um, you know, being being aware of uh, uh, how much that affected Tim. Right. It was it was pretty it was pretty brutal. But for you know, we were really fortunate in in how much time 
we were given in production rehearsals to to create that show. Um, and that that was we, what we Dire Straits. Long... Yeah, yeah, that okay. was Dire Straits. Yeah, and you used yeah. how many Intellibeams? I I want to say it was seventy eight. I I oh, I, good I don't recall exactly. Um, but um, you know that those that that tour was an extremely long tour. I know, I'm sure there were. A, a few sort of partial redesigns during um, during that tour. I know, in fact, I know there were. Um, so I don't know that what we started out with, um, well, we definitely ended up with more than we started out with. Yeah. So as I recall, you actually owned those Intellibeams. You bought them. And was that like a big part of the foundation of what became Zenith Lighting that Henry was talking about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it did absolutely. It was um, uh, it, it was the basis of it, really. I mean, I, I you know, like I said, I, I had a couple of consoles or, or whatever, but but that was basically it. But yeah. that deal um, was basically the the start of of Zenith. Yeah, that's that's really cool. So Zenith. You know, you mentioned Zenith or Zenith being your supplier in in Europe. Is there any tie there? Like, why did you use that name? There, there is absolutely. You know, I mean, there, there was a there was a great fondness, but um, you know, the meaning of Zenith, um, the highest point of, of you know of of an arc on the horizon, and um, uh, it it's you know, it was just for me. It was like a name that that, that had a lot of history, and yeah. uh, it became available. There was the whole sort of takeover of uh, Samuelson's buying out Zenith, and the name got put on the shelf. And actually, um, right after that Dire Straits tour, when I when I had all of uh, this equipment, I I left some in London uh, and uh, tried to run a Zenith London with John Cadbury at the helm um, and, and also over here in the States. So we had half the gear in the, in, in London, half the gear in the States. And, um, but it was, it was terribly difficult uh, trying to yeah. make any money in London. It was almost impossible. Yeah. So, so Chaz, you're in Colorado at this point, is that correct? So that's where Zenith lighting was operating at that point. Well, I was on the road all the time, but <laughs> Um, yeah, I probably, I probably was, I, I lived in Colorado for quite a long time and, and, um, I, I want to say, yeah. Huh. So I flitted around quite a bit. I moved around quite a bit. I, you know, I've lived in New York and New Jersey and, uh, Colorado and LA. But obviously Zenith as we know it is, or Zenith, uh, I apologize if we pronounce it the American way. But um, Zenith, as we know it, is, I'm very <laughs> is obviously based out of Orlando. Uh, you know, I wasn't at Correct. High End when you started dealing with High End, so I met you a little bit later, and you would have already been based in, in Orlando. And you've built an amazing business in Orlando. And, you know, one of the things that I've spoken with, with other people about, but also we spoke a little bit in the intro, is that you know, again, somehow you seem to keep transitioning through all these different things with, with ease, 
you know, I mean, maybe it was harder at the time in, in your world, but it looks like everything just kind of fell into place so easily going from, you know, some kid on the street with, you know, no job to suddenly you're an audio engineer mixing, you know, dire straits to, uh, you know, now you're a lighting guy touring with some of the biggest bands in the world. And guess what? Then I'm a successful business owner in the lighting industry. And honestly, you know, I'm trying to think of other examples where people transitioned from being a, a working lighting designer touring uh, to being a lighting company owner. Are there any? I can't really think of one. I mean, I'm not thinking super uh, hard. Well, certainly Howard Ungerleiter. Uh, Howard Ungerleiter has done very well, more yeah, so Howard, on the uh, more so on the laser side, but also as a production company. But there's not a lot of examples. Um, you know, it was a very uh, for me that decision. Um, you know, I ended up with all of this equipment, and um, uh, I can't remember if my kids had been born. Um, uh, but, but anyway, you know, there, there is a point I think in, in a touring, um, career where, you know, you, you kind of evaluate where, where you're at and your, your family and, and, um, what's important. And obviously, you know, to, to have a relationship with my kids, um, um, I, I couldn't be on the road. I mean, I, I was yeah. touring so heavily, and, and you know, I, I think when you when you you're in your late thirties, early forties, um, and your kids come along, you know, you you have to make a decision, right? Yeah. So I I I made a very conscious decision to to switch um, to 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 start a business and and be able to be a be around yeah but um, there's the fact that you did it but you know again i like i you know at in my core i'm a business guy and i happen to be in the entertainment business and in the production business but at, at my core you know i i like business fundamentals and you're one of those guys like you're not just a flippant you know guy who bought a bunch of gear and puts it out to rent and doesn't really know what he's doing and doesn't really have a plan you know, and you and I have had a lot of discussions about this kind of stuff, just real business fundamentals and, you know, buying gear because it makes financial sense to buy that gear, selling it because it makes financial sense to sell it. And, you know, I put you up on that same pedestal with with David Milley and, you know, some of the guys who really have done a great job in, you know, building strong, financially successful um, businesses and so, you know, where did you get your business acumen from? I honestly I have no clue. I, I don't, um, you know, I really wish, uh, honestly, that I, I had had more schooling in, in business. I, I never really had any, certainly no Nor did formal I. education. Um, so for me, most, most of it was, you know, um, common sense. It was, it was, uh, fairly basic and, you know, fine by the seat of your pants, uh, which is, uh, you know, honestly, obviously not the best way to do it. And, and I'll, I'll uh, say again, I've been a very, very fortunate person. Um, but but in, not dissimilar, in, not dissimilar to your audio engineering uh, experience, nor your beginning in lighting design. So, 
uh, it's funny. Like, it's just really interesting that that's the trend of your entire career is, okay, let me try this now. And, um, you've obviously been successful at every level. So, you know, good on you. That's, that's an incredible thing. But Chaz, well, it, well, thank it, you. At this point though, also, I mean, you know, when you moved to Orlando, obviously is when I really got to know you well, I had, you know, we had talked when you were still out in Colorado and just at that point where you moved here, but you know, anybody that's done business with you knows that you're a very, very sharp shrewd negotiator when it when it comes to purchasing equipment you're very very knowledgeable about that <laughs> now i mean you know you know i've sat through meetings with you obviously other people have you know and you're somewhat famous in the industry for this right here but you mean to tell me you've had no formal education in negotiation or in business at all to where you, you just did it and no no there you no, went no, nothing that nothing, is astounding yeah. Yeah, that, that can be an experience, I'll tell you, you know, Henry, you're saying it very diplomatically, but yes, I, am. I remember the first time I had to sell Chaz something, <laughs> you know, I think I still have skin off my ass from the first time that I had to sell Chaz something. And, uh, you know, there, it's like going through a, a dishwasher or a washing machine or something and trying to come out the other end. You know, you're, you're, uh, I definitely, I appreciate that kind of negotiating. I like it. I enjoy it. And, uh, but you know, it's an experience going through Chaz is definitely an experience. You, you can't have a weak, uh, personality, you know, and sit there and, well, and you, you, try to sell Chaz something. I, I think, I think probably, um, you know, having, having been through the years, you know, been in the company, people like Wiseman, and, uh, uh, you know, people of, of that stature, um, you know, you, you, you kind of see that, that uh, these guys know how to negotiate and, yeah. and how to take care of things. Yeah, and, if, and, if I'm going to survive, uh, I better figure this survive. out, right? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, and, and John, John uh, whether he knows it or not, you know, was very instrumental in, in a lot of things for me. I mean, I, I listened to... Um, you know, both John's uh, podcast and, and um, Brickman's. Yeah. And ver- both, you know, wonderfully interest- interesting. And, and, but, but John, you know, uh, r- when, when all of that went down, it was a very disruptive and, and, and no intention on my part, to be quite honest. Um, but it was a very disruptive kind of thing. The whole, um, bringing in telebeams into what, you know, Verilite then considered their, um, they you know, the market, their school right? yard. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah it, 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 it was, it was unbelievably, um, strange. And, and I actually recall because we, you know, I think John thought we just had Intellibeams on, on that, that tour, but we actually had VLs and, um, Intellibeams and, um, I remember doing a show in, in, in Dallas at the arena in Dallas and, um, uh, John and Rusty Boucher being there and, and, uh, it was kind of awkward. It was, you know, it was probably the first time that, that, that I realized how, uh, you know, what an awkward kind of situation I'd, I'd, uh, created here. Um, yeah. you know, very, very, you know, innocently. I, I must say. Well, and as I recall from the story that John told, 
uh, he pretty much told those guys, you know, this guy's going to eat our lunch. These guys are going to eat our lunch unless we figure this out. And, you know, I guess he was right about that, right? If it hadn't have been Dire Straits, it would have been somebody else. Yeah. Um, whether whether it would have made such a big statement, I, I don't know. Because, you know, that was really kind of, it was a huge tour um, for Dire Straits. And I, and I think, you know, visually it, it, it was, um, you know, it made an impact. People yeah. that saw that show um, kind, kind of got why um we'd use them um but could you quite so, so, believe yeah. like looking back could you believe how much the floodgates opened on that product once you kind of you know poked the surface a little bit um you know 2020 hindsight i i, I guess um you know I, at the time absolutely not i mean i i'm i'm i was really very naive yeah and um had no Real, real understanding at all of, of what that meant. I mean, I think um, uh, that, you know, uh, Rich Bellevue certainly understood that way ahead of the game because he, he wouldn't have offered that $1,000 reward to his sales guy to, yeah. you know, who brought in the, the LD. Yeah. Um, so he, he absolutely uh, got it. Um, well, Richard's, Richard and, is an, uh, an incredible visionary still today and was certainly back then and has been his entire career. And with, so, yeah, yeah, you're right. He got it. He knew the impact that that would have, and that's why he pursued you so hard and flew you into Austin and all of those things. And But, I mean, equally as important was a designer who had the the foresight and the cojones to try something like that in, you know, sort of a taboo world, you know, the first one to cross that Verilite line, you know, and, you know, it was a huge success. And like you said, it wasn't without bumps and, and bruises. Um, but, you know, somebody had to take the plunge and you were that guy and, and, you know, good on you. I mean, I think it's a, it's a really cool thing. It obviously shaped the industry for not only high end, but also the company that I was with Martin and others like them because you know we had been taboo in the rental business until that moment and then all of a sudden when the intellibeam got accepted so did everything else yeah i mean i i i you know i can't tell you how uh hard those guys worked you know to to make that successful i mean they really put you know it could have been something where where they they went at it um you know, half-heartedly, and they, and they certainly didn't. They they put their best guys out there. Billy McCarty, who who, God bless him, is is no longer with us. But um, you know, B Billy was the main tech on that tour. Um, just you know, he he every day he would graft to keep that system going. And but but there were so many little things. You know, um, we had all dichroic glass we didn't have a single gel on that tour even even the even the follow spot filters were um dichroics because rich had the you know he had the dichroic um yeah the thing that, that yeah yeah that they that they started up and um it was amazing you know because moving moving power lamps in and out of uh, you know arenas on trucks i tell you the the amount of amount of um you know 
broken glass that we we sustained was pretty massive and they they replaced them all the time i mean yeah. at great cost yeah. it was very expensive it wasn't a cheap process well i'm sure Certain, but again if you look at that as as you know even if they just look at that tour in its entirety not as a not as a sale, but as a, a marketing expense. You know what I mean? Putting all those people out, having people back at the factory, making more dichroics, making parts, making, because I know too, like I remember my first tour with Martin was, was hell. And just keeping it loaded up with parts and spares was tough enough. And, you know, then you've got yeah. crew guys, crew guys that are going, oh, there we go. We got to go take another four telebeams down out of the rig again, you know? And so, um, you know, you know, John John Wiseman um, made a, a real valid comment. Uh, you know, again about the these guys are going to eat your lunch, um, which really was the fact that that um, Verilite, for the most part, back then the 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 people that were running it were were not very. Um, sociable and and they certainly you know they didn't feel like they had to do anymore well i don't know that that was the case but but high-end were were certainly willing to bend over backwards to make anything work i mean that they, yeah. they had a guy larry cotton um who was one of their software guys and, and larry basically wrote the interface um program so that i could control the shutters on all of the uh, IntelliBeams from an AVO console. So we really had this sort of analog digital uh, interface, um, which I guess was fairly, you know, the program was pretty simple. I think it was a simple Mac program that, that, that he used to create it, but um, it worked, you know. So I had all these people that were really willing to go out of their way yeah. to make something happen. Um, and, and it was completely the opposite with, with Verilite. It's like, okay, you know, this is what you got and, and this is what you're going to pay and that's yeah. it. Well, I mean, <laughs> if not arrogant, maybe complacent, you know, just really kind of stuck in their ways and thinking, like you said, they don't really have to do anything more. You know, they already own the entire market, so just keep supplying, right? But, I mean, the pretty biggest, much, pretty much. The biggest thing, the biggest reason that the entire industry, and Wiseman brought it up, but... Um, the entire industry wanted the IntelliBeam to succeed was because then they could own it. And, you know, they were at Verilite's mercy on previous tours because if something was specced on that tour, even if upstaging or whoever else was going to get the tour, they had to go back to Verilite and pay whatever Verilite wanted them to pay to rent those Verilites. And it was a significant yep. expense, a big part of that weekly that you were paying out, you know, so... Um, people yeah. wanting to, to own the inventory and control their own destiny was a pretty big thing. And so it was only natural that that, that Verilite thing was going to tumble. Like you said, if not you and if not high end, it was going to be somebody that was going to finally take right. a big poke at the bear. And an interesting, an interesting right. story that I have about high end. I went to work for high end in, uh, 1994, I believe. And I remember... My first day there was getting an orientation, and then it was either Richard Bellevue or Jeff Pezel hands me a key and the alarm code to the building. And they go, okay, Henry, you're going to support the uh, studio color. Here's the key and the alarm code. If you get a call from a tour at 2 o'clock in the morning, 
here's where you go. You pull any parts that you need to keep this tour up and running and get them down to the airport immediately. Immediately, And that was just an overall commitment company-wide. You would write a note and leave it at the end of the production line because they knew where to get the stuff. And then literally you had counter-to-counter service out of Southwest Airlines. And I'd be there at, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning at uh, the old Austin airport putting parts on to support a tour. So it was amazing. They were willing to do things that I think really no other company was willing to do, even the one that I worked for. And um, that was really what earned them that market. And what lost them parts of the market was when they either stopped doing those things or they forgot to innovate or whatever. I mean, that's just what happens. Companies go through those cycles. And, you know, Verilite had another kick at the can because they listened to the designers. They listened to the market. You know, they knew that they needed to build a product you could own and it had to be more reliable and it had to have certain things or not have certain things. And and then Verilite was hugely successful again. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it it's just kind of how it goes. So what about gear like kind of then versus now kind of stuff? Um, you know, I know you're still very actively running your company. And as I've already noted, I think that you're a a very smart business guy and, um, you know, somebody who's always looking at the business sense uh, first, not just, you know, ooh, there's another flashy, cool thing. I better buy some of those. And so, you know, gear, we've talked about it a lot on this show, how much gear has evolved and especially the cost of gear has evolved. So, you know, the IntelliBeam being the perfect model where you paid, what was it, two or $3,000 for an IntelliBeam. You rented it for $200 a week for God knows how long. You owned it for years. And, <laughs> and then you sold it used for 1500 bucks or whatever. That model right. doesn't exist today, but you know there's still some right. obviously great product out there. But it's, the model has gone a little crazy where, you know, I, I remember at one point, uh, I don't, maybe it was the VL3000 that was selling for like nine or $10,000 brand new, but people were renting them for 125 or 150 bucks. You know, that just, that like uh, Bush used to say, that arithmetic don't work. And uh, so, I, you know, do you struggle with that stuff? Of course. I mean, I, I, you know, um, I listened to Dave Milley, uh, you know, talking about the same thing. And I, I think any company owner, you know, you, you have to look at everything and all the time. I mean, and it's, it's always, uh, uh, a moving target, but, um, yeah, it, it's, it's something that you're keenly aware of, uh, yeah. aware of. And I, you know, honestly, nowadays I, I try, you know, we're, we're very spec driven in, in terms of the purchases that we, that we do make. Um, but, um, I, you know, I, I have people that, that, uh, work, work for the company that are far more well equipped to make those decisions than, than I am in terms of fixtures, because yeah. nowadays it, it, it seems to me that, that, um, it can be really minor nuances that uh, a designer is looking for, which, you know, makes him choose one fixture over another. And um, not, not really being out there on a, on a show floor to um, wrap my head around the reason why they want to do that um, sort of leaves me a little bit, um, out of it. So I, I really try not to, to focus too much on, on, 
fixture decisions. I think I'm probably more intrigued in infrastructure stuff. Um, you know, uh, probably what people would deem as being boring. I mean, uh, unique cable assemblies and and stuff like <laughs> stuff yeah. like that. You yeah. Know? Um, but uh, which is equally as important. I mean, uh, and you know, an ME nowadays, uh, you know, can can drive decisions um, probably more so than than designers. I think. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in terms of the companies that are chosen to to do a, a job, or um, you know, and generally speaking, they they are very particular. They want certain equipment um on their shows and and you really need to sit up and listen to what they have to say so is there a lot there are a lot of focus on speed of deploy now Chaz? is that what you're telling me so as you build you know your your wiring well, there, 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 there is that as well i mean but but yeah certainly speed but i think um you know just you know simplicity in in terms of being able to cable a system um, with as few failure points as possible um, in a very logical fashion that's, you know, um, easy for them to troubleshoot on site. I mean, basically, that that's what that comes down to. Because we, you know, we're not so much, um, you know, I, I think the speed of deployment thing is is probably something that is a far higher value in um, concert touring with, large rigs um as opposed to doing you know a, a corporate one-off right well yeah i mean especially now you've got these consoles with you know many many universes of dmx and you've got so many channels being utilized by you know pixel mapping and video and all of these different things and so when something goes weird, it goes really weird now. Like it's not just one fixture, you know, wiggling wrong or within the wrong color or whatever. You know, it's it's such a big thing. So that's actually quite quite smart that you're really focused on the infrastructure. And you know, another thing I, I'll never forget when Huntley Chris when Huntley Christie walked me through one of his warehouses one time, and he had the Amazon mentality going on where you know fixtures will come and go there's all different kinds and different colors and different sizes and whatever but what i can do is i can make sure that whatever fixture is going into a box that the box is the same physical exterior size or they're being yeah. plugged in the same way by the same type of cable um you know like he can control that infrastructure and it allows him to be more profitable or or to be in his case it was more scalable you know he wanted to be able to build multiple multiple offices and know that you know if you took 50 fixtures from one office and 50 from another office they were going to be in the same physical size cases and you know it didn't screw up truck packs and things so um i always found that to be really brilliant and it seemed like the companies that get it uh, do really well and the companies that don't like I remember also um, PRG when they first started meshing all these companies together and buying up companies one of the biggest problems they had was exactly that the infrastructure like I remember Marty Nerudin uh, explaining it to me that you know his biggest challenge was if fixtures are coming from production arts they were in a certain kind of case and they were wired differently or you know they were using this kind of cable versus that or whatever nothing ever matched together really well and that was a huge undertaking right. 
to to fix i think i think you're absolutely right i mean and uh you know you, you're right about huntley you know it's it's uh a trademark thing for them i mean he for me i've always compared it to um a southwest airlines business model where you know you you, you kind of have the same fleet throughout so that yeah you're um your technicians are only working, you know, they only have to know one system. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, which is a very sensible thing, especially on uh, a scale, you know, of, that, of the yeah. size that he, he operates. Well, the reason I say Amazon is because, like, I thought it was goofy when I first saw it. Like, I could see the light. I could understand where he was going. But when you see a road case that's too big for the fixture that's in it, you still go, what? This doesn't make sense. And still to today, when I get Amazon Prime packages and you've got a thing that's four inches by four inches, but it's in a box that's 12 inches, 12 by, inches by 20 yeah. inches or whatever, you know, it's just a huge box. You still go, this is so wasteful. But it really isn't because of their infrastructure. Right. And it's just so efficient. Right. And so you replace some of the, you know, some of that size or mass you replace with efficiency and obviously Amazon's proven that that's a very successful model. So, you know, but I, Huntley's another guy, you know, like you, like David Milley, that I just have a lot of respect for his just, you know, the fact that he's a businessman. He, he doesn't look at this as art. He looks at it as business. And you have to at the end of the day, because as the fixtures get more yeah. and more expensive and the life of the fixtures gets shorter, which is, uh, you know, sort of the double edged uh, or or, you know, just a a perfect storm, you know, because you've got a fixture that's getting more expensive and a lifespan that's, that's shorter or a, an earning life that's shorter. Um, doesn't make any sense. So you have to, you have to be very efficient in order for it to, uh, you know, not make your business implode. Well, I, I have a question for you on, on that, you know, um, I, I recall a comment that, that you, uh, made about, uh, I think it was Bob Dickinson with the Oscars using uh, VL3500s and basically old school fixtures. Okay. Mm -hmm. Recently, is that right? Yeah. Um, and and I, you know, I'd really like to know: was that a statement? Was Bob making a statement by by that design? I mean, you know, using old school fixtures, uh, and was he saying something about, you know, how? crazy it is out there with the you know the variety of everything well we didn't talk now. to bob we didn't talk to bob about that so i don't really recall the conversation but that probably would have been either with john or with somebody else and talking um in theory maybe i think it was when we actually looked at the plot and uh right. somebody one of the magazines or polestar or someone put out a an equipment list and we looked at that and so the the only I mean the thing that I would say when somebody's renting uh, or or specking VL three thousands or whatever on a design it's either a comfort level or it's based on economics with the shop that he's getting the product out of it's got to be one of those two things and you know I, I, I can't speak I, for Bob I, I, yeah I'm not so sure about that I I, I have to feel that that um... Yeah, you know, Bob, Bob's comfort level with things would be 
far broader than that, no. I mean, I don't you know, know. the old yeah. Chaz, I, correct I, I, what if I'm wrong. But... What do you think, though? It's like flipping the bird to the industry or well, something? Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I, and I certainly don't think it would be an economic uh, thing with the Oscars. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, that, that's why I was asking the question. I, I, I'm wondering if there's a sort of a, um, you know, unspoken statement there. I, I don't know. Well, know. we're going to have to, uh, we'll have to reach out to Bob and try and try and get that answered. Maybe we'll get him on the show and, and he can explain that himself because, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think we're just guessing and putting words in his mouth, but I just, yeah, usually when you see these massive designs or plots or equipment lists, they're going to have Roby BMFLs. They're going to have Martin's latest fixture or high ends or Verilite's latest fixture not something that was designed 10 years ago. And exactly. So yeah, it is, it is odd. Um, I don't recall thinking that it was incredibly odd, but uh, you know, sometimes like I, I know, you know, there's designers who are still specking, uh, you know, VL fives probably, or, or um, you know, that's Alan Brandt, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. So, you know, oh, there that, 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 I, that I totally get. I mean, I, if, if I were designing, I'd be using VL500s or VL5s all day long. I, I love yeah. that light. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, have you seen the new high-end? Or I don't know how new it is anymore, but and I don't recall what it's called either. Henry, you probably know. The, uh, there's the solo frame. There's the turbo ray. Uh, turbo a ray, yeah. The one yeah. using that uh, the VL5 color system. The radial. Yeah. yeah. The radial system. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I have. Um I uh, I think I saw it. Well, I, yeah, I saw it at LDI for sure. Yeah. Um, in, interesting take on it. Um, yeah. I for me, you know, the VL VL five hundred is is a unique, you know, yeah, once in a lifetime light. Yeah, yeah, and they certainly have uh, have continued success. So, so what? Uh, you know, I'm gonna start winding this down because I know you have a life to live and a, and a company to run, but what still excites you in, in, uh, I mean, you've done some really, really cool things between audio recording and, uh, lighting design. And now as a, as a businessman and, you know, father, husband, all of those, uh, personal things as well. But you know, what are, what are you excited about today? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, I, I mean, it's it's always interesting to see where uh, you know where we come from and um, where we're heading. I mean, I I don't you know obviously you you never know where it's going to end up, um, and I think that's kind of exciting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, day to day challenges are are always interesting. Um, uh, you know the the variety of things that that are important. Um, uh, you know, making sure that everybody is is on the same page, making sure that your your staff are happy, and um, you know all of those things. I mean, yeah. you, you get it. You know, yeah. you know what it's like. I yeah. mean, it, it it can be it it can be the really really small things that that make make the biggest differences in. Uh, how a project goes or whatever. But, you know, I, I think, I think really what excites me is to see the enthusiasm and, and the, um, 
you know, the effort that, that all of um, our staff put into everything and, and um, ha- you know, really that enthusiasm, I, I, yeah. it, it, that excites me. It makes yeah. me very happy to see that. Do you still do your own, like, do you still design stuff and spec it yourself or is most of the, most of the touring stuff anyways that you're providing, is that all spec-based? I, I, I haven't designed anything no. in decades. Yeah, not even like, a, not even like a big, uh, you know, some sort of a corporate or something. Nothing. I haven't Nothing. done, honestly, I haven't designed anything in, in, uh, Maybe eighteen years. Oh wow! Like I, didn't, wow. Years. I didn't know that. I yeah, thought, a long time. Thought you still yeah. did a bit of that stuff. No, just you know, may, maybe maybe home installation stuff, and uh, you know that my, my own yeah. home. That it's not. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I've I've dealt with you on some of those projects, <laughs> and it's uh, you're always you're always pretty creative. Let's there put it that it. way. Thank you. So, Chaz, so one last question. Um, and Marcel usually asks it, but is there a fixture out there that hasn't been invented yet or a product that hasn't been invented yet that you would really like to see? This would be useful, other than the skyhook, right? But uh, what do you see out there that oh, there's boy. a real need for in the industry? You know, uh, so, something to make it simpler. I, I, it seems to be so complex now. Um, you know, I, I don't know the answer. I know what you're saying, but I I, I don't really have a specific thing in mind that I would be able to suggest, but it seems to me that everything is so complex now. Um, uh, yeah. so something that would would make it a little, little bit simpler. Because I, 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 I really think that, that designers are kind of losing out to, you know, they have to spend so much time, um, you know, they don't get very much time anyway now to, to um, be hands-on with stuff. So, uh, and they spend so much time having to, you know, deal with the complexity of the systems, the networks and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think the art suffers yeah. because of it. I, I really feel that. Um, so, uh, I agree, you know, you know, and, and Mark, Mark and others have told us also where, you know, the, the brightness of the video screens is becoming a bigger and bigger problem all the time. And, you know, you're, you're competing against these massive televisions yeah, we, and, no. um, it's really changed the, the art of, of lighting. And, you know, when you even just looking at YouTube videos of, of tours from, you know, 20, 30 years ago versus tours from today, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes a bit of a traditionalist when it comes to this stuff. And I, although I love all the cool technology that you see on some of these things today, I look back at, at stuff from 20, 30 years plus, uh, and, and, you know, to me, it's just, it, there's more art. It, it just, you know, you can really see what they were trying to do. Now it's just kind of like, you know, let's get as much gear out as we possibly can and, uh, blind the audience. Kind of r- right. I, and I'm not saying everyone does that, well, you know, you know and certainly there's still designers like Brickman talked about the tour that he did recently yeah. with, uh, uh, with Neil Young with four follow wow. or six follow spots, I think was the entire lighting rig. And, uh, you know, that's cool. I, I think it was his comment, um, about how the video screen basically, you know, went to actually make Mick Jagger look smaller and not larger than life was, you know, right, uh, yeah. was, 
was yeah. a real statement because because I, and I think there's a lot of truth to that and you know that's one of the things Mark has always been really you know he's always had a great sense of that kind of stuff um, you know yeah. and 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 again you know the thinking outside of the box with the the uh, Neil Young follow spot thing is is yeah brilliant in its simplicity yeah <laughs> yeah I love it yeah perfectly said yeah, I mean it perfectly really is. said. Well, Chaz, I thank you so much for coming on and doing this with uh, with us today. I uh, I know you're a busy guy, and uh, you know I personally like you an awful lot, so I just enjoy an hour and a half sitting here talking with you. But uh, very interesting stuff, and um, thanks very much, Chaz. Well, well, great well, likewise, and, and th- thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it, and, and I just want to say that. Um, I love the show, man. It's very interesting. It's great to hear uh, all these old geezers, um, you know, give, giving yeah. us an insight into the whys and wherefores of uh, what they do. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that, and and it is fun, and we're we're happy it's being so widely accepted. And uh, you know, there is a little pressure to get somebody on that's under like forty. So we're we're actively pursuing a few uh big up and coming designers and a couple audio guys and stuff that are super super interesting so we'll see how that goes but yeah so thanks Chaz you you have an unbelievable week and I look forward to seeing you probably at uh Infocom All right you guys you do the same and I'll there again And there you have it thank you very much to Chaz Harrington for coming on to Geezers of Gear episode 18 this week And we will be back with you again next week with another great episode. Bye-bye. Sweet.